Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we ask now, would you come by the power of the Holy Spirit and speak to us clearly from this, your word, that we might gain all of the benefit that you have in store for your people today. Lord, hear our need and answer it now by your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Actually, as I was preaching in the early service uh, this morning, a story popped into my mind in large part about how we're going to move through the text here of Isaiah chapter 6. But I remember this Nerf gun war. You know, everything leads to Nerf gun wars. Um, I remember this Nerf gun war when I was seven or eight years old with one of my best neighborhood friends, uh, Chris Fortenberry was his name. He lived just catty corner uh, to where I grew up. And we in the afternoons, always up to no good, running around in the woods around our house, were spying on some of the, the, the neighborhood girls, of course, who had, uh, well, lemonade and cookies and all kinds of wonderful things that we desired to have. And we, however, were stalking them. They had nothing to do with us. They could care less about us. Um, we, were, we were around the edge of a house, and uh, Chris uh, looked around, and he saw you know, this gaggle of girls. And, um, and he said, I have good news and I have bad news. And I said, well, okay, what, what's the good news? They have lemonade and they have cookies. Well, what's the bad news? Um, it's 10 to 1. Like, there's way more of them than it is of us. <laughs> That's the bad news. 
Well, in some ways, I think that sort of good news, bad news story is really the story of Isaiah 6. Now, it's much more serious than a Nerf war of what's happening here in Isaiah 6. Uh, There is a a bad news story and a good news story that's unfolding next to each other in all of the stanzas here in Isaiah's call. And interestingly, the bad news of what's taking place for the people of Israel is, is actually the context in which the good news of what's shared about Isaiah's call really comes to life in this text. And I want to really, you to see what I'm going to call three couplets of bad news and good news in the text. Let me give you those couplets. The bad news is the king dies, and the good news is that there is a Lord on the throne. That's couplet number one. The bad news is the king has died, but the good news is there's a Lord on the throne. The second couplet is sinners can't be in the presence of a holy king. That's the bad news. The good news is the holy king atones for sinners. The good news is the holy king atones for sinners. And the third couplet, the bad news is there's coming judgment for God's people. There's coming judgment for God's people, but the good news is there's a holy seed that is to come. There's a holy seed that is to come. So you see bad news and you see good news in three couplets throughout Isaiah 6. And I want to take each of these in turn as we look at this text together. And I want to start with the bad news of the king that dies in this text. Did you notice how this chapter begins in the minor key? Notice how it starts in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was the the 10th in a long line of kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He is actually the longest reigning of the southern uh, kingdom kings. He came to the throne at 16 years of age. How about that? And he reigned for 52 years in Judah. King Uzziah was significant in the life of the people of Israel in the southern kingdom. And he experienced and enjoyed, we might say, a long and peaceful and really decorated kingly career. He built, for instance, several really architectural pieces that he was known by, large towers at the corner gate and at the valley gates. He built massive ramparts and walls in the wilderness surrounding Jerusalem to keep enemies at bay, which was one of the reasons they enjoyed so much peace during his reign. Uh, his, his efforts over their enemies, the Philistines and Amorites, were second to none in the, second, uh, in the southern kingdom. He enjoyed incredible ascendancy over Israel's enemies, and he actually restored in many ways the fruitfulness of the land. Um, the produce, the farming of the land, the herdsmen, uh, the grape uh, vines, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey under Uzziah's reign was flourishing once again. But more important than all of these, these um, marked uh, realities over Uzziah's reign, protection and produce and peace, was the fact that Uzziah was a man of principle. He was a man who loved the Lord, and he loved the Lord's people, and he led them with a kind of spiritual maturity and wisdom and grace. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah is memorably described by these words, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Wouldn't you love that to be said of you? Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. 
Now, despite all of this and the soaring record and even the, the, the declaring in Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 26 of him doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, if you know his story, it doesn't end very well. It's a bit of a cautionary tale. Uh, Uzziah's pride ultimately gets the best of him near the very end of his ministry. You hated when a king uh, has, has served so well, so faithfully for so many decades and then ends on a sour note. And that's really the story of Uzziah's reign. For he took matters into his own hands with regards to the priesthood. He entered the temple not according to the commands of God and he burned incense on the altar, which was a rite that was exclusively reserved for the priests. And as a consequence of Uzziah's sinful actions, the Lord actually struck him with leprosy. And this great king was forced to spend the rest of his days in quarantine, uh, never again dwelling in the palace, cut off from the temple and from the presence of the Lord. This incredible reign of Uzziah ended in this sad whimper of a man who ultimately lost his way at the end of his life. When we read at the opening of Isaiah chapter 6 that in the year of King Uzziah's death, we're reading what has been a glorious period in the life of the southern kingdom of unprecedented prosperity, wealth, and and, and peace. And yet there is this note of sadness with regards to Uzziah that is there. And as Uzziah has breathed his last, it's almost as if the people of Israel are holding their breath here at the last. For they're wondering, what's going to happen to Judah? What's going to happen to the southern kingdom? Assyria to the north is growing in in power and threatening Israel. Are they going to use this moment of vulnerability to exploit the southern kingdom? Will this period of prosperity and peace end suddenly with calamity and tragedy after Uzziah's death? This is the bad news. The king dies. And as Isaiah is serving here in the temple, what we begin to see is good news is on the horizon. For as he hears this news, the reality of Uzziah's death, he sees through a vision that the Lord is on the throne. The Lord is on the throne. Listen to the language of of chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's this moment of death in the southern kingdom, and what we see is a king who is alive on the throne of heaven. This this tremendous ruler who's described with overwhelming power, uh, one who is high and lifted up. His ascendancy is above all. His glory and his majesty are so marked that the robe that that he wears fills the entirety of the temple. In the ancient Near East, a robe was, uh, its length of the robe was often a mark of the majesty of a particular ruler and, and king. And in some traditions, when a king would, uh, would defeat an enemy, a part of that robe's king would, uh, would be torn off and would be sewn on the king's robe who had been the victor. It might be the picture here of one who has been victorious over all, that his train fills the entirety of the temple. Uh, Here we see the weakness of mortal kings such as Uzziah who has breathed his last, who struggled with leprosy because of his unfaithfulness. Here we see a faithful king full of power in heaven. The throne is occupied. And notice this king and his power is holy. Unlike Uzziah who ended in this 
sad story of unfaithfulness. These seraphim, these burning ones, these angels who are flitting about doing the errands of the Lord who is on the throne are crying out in an unending chorus of holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You can imagine the kind of assurance that that this should have or would have given uh, to one who has seen now the throne of Israel unoccupied and the vulnerability of the moment with Assyria growing in power to the north to be cast into a vision to see the Lord himself on a heavenly throne with, with power at his disposal, with holiness being his character. You, you, Uzziah is dead, but this king is alive. Uzziah has failed, but this king is glorious in power and in holiness. Uzziah's voice has been silenced, but the seraphim speak, holy, holy, holy is this one. And as he speaks, the very thresholds of heaven itself shake. What wonderful news that even today, that the throne of heaven is occupied. It's not empty. Uh, Heaven's not up for re-election. Uh, the, the, the Yahweh is there, the Lord of heaven and earth, rules and reigns on high, and men come and go, nations rise and fall, but this one is always high and lifted up. That's the picture here. The bad news of Uzziah's death is really swallowed up in the good news of the king of heaven who sits upon the throne. But it doesn't immediately strike Uzziah, or I should say Isaiah in this case, it doesn't immediately strike him as good news. I mean, you'd half expect that Isaiah would start singing with the seraphim, don't you? You know, as he sees this vision of the high and lifted up holiness of God, and he knows the loss of of the southern kingdom's king, that he too would rejoice that there is someone on the throne in whom he can place his host. But that's not what we see at all, isn't it? The bad news of Uzziah's death, swallowed up in the good news of the throne of heaven being filled, is then captured by bad news again, that sinners can't be in the presence of a holy king. You see, not once does Isaiah actually speak in the first five chapters of his prophecy. But here in chapter 6, we get the very first words from the lips of Isaiah. And what does he say? Well, it's not happy words. It's words of anguish. Woe is me, he says, for I am lost. As Isaiah captures a vision of the holiness and the glory of him who is high and lifted up and on the throne in heaven, full in his holiness, Isaiah is a man who pronounces a declaration of woe upon himself. Woe, a word that we see throughout the prophetic literature. In each one of the great prophets, a a word that is used to begin an oracle of judgment. In fact, Isaiah's already used the word woe five times in the first five chapters. But when he has used it in the first five chapters of Isaiah, he's been speaking about the wicked nations. He's been speaking about the wickedness of God's people. Now, in the sixth chapter, where he finally speaks for himself in first person, where does the woe fall? It falls on him. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's an extraordinary statement. I mean, let's think for a minute of just who Isaiah is. He's a prophet. He's a man, so to speak, that makes his living speaking for God, using his lips. 
He's a man whom the Lord has trusted with power and authority to declare the truth of, of God. And the first thing that comes to his mind is that he's a man of unclean lips when he sees the holiness of God. He dwells among a people of unclean lips. And the weight of his testimony is one that he's fearful of being condemned. When you read that language, for I am lost, I wonder what comes to mind. Maybe you, maybe you think it's what happened to me a couple of times yesterday, traveling back to, to Franklin after being away for a couple of days, and I took several wrong turns, and GPS saved me. Right? Maybe, maybe you think of lost as taking a wrong turn and then needing to get your bearings and listening to the voice that's going to recalculate you and reorient you to where it is that you need to go. Is that what's happening here for Isaiah? He's saying, I need to be, I need to be recalculated. I, I need to get my bearings. Now, that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, the, the word for lost here is a word that's, that sometimes is translated undone. Or I am a man who is ruined. In, in part, the reason it's translated in these different ways is it's a word that's connected to the notion of silence. Now, but not just silence like we might say, oh, it's nice to have some silence around the house. No, not that kind of silence. It's the kind of silence that comes after death. When the voice can no longer speak, when we have lost all words, as Isaiah has come into the presence of the Lord, his fear is that he's not just a man of unclean lips, he's a man who's going to lose any ability to move his lips. He's going to fall into the silence of death. He is going to be undone. He's going to be utterly ruined because he has met the holiness of God. You know, if there was one doctrine that we might point to in the Bible that has fallen on particularly hard times, we might, it might be two doctrines that we're going to actually see in this text. One would be the judgment of God and the other would be the holiness of God. And the reason we don't actually understand or appreciate the judgment of God, it always feels hyperbolic and overwrought to people like us. You know, really, isn't he just overreacting? It's because we really don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand the greatness and the majesty of God. You see, Isaiah himself, you get the sense here, he's already, in the, uh, he's already a, a prophet of the living God, but the understanding of this kind of work as he's into chapter 6 by this point is he hasn't really come to know God yet. He hasn't really come to know him in the terms of his holiness, his greatness, his glory, and his majesty, that he dwells in unapproachable light. That in his glory and in his holiness, he rules and reigns on high, and that he cannot tolerate and will not stand for the slightest bit of wickedness. This is the reason, even when Moses in Exodus chapter 33 asked to be able to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord responds to him, You know what? You can't see my glory and live. No one can see my glory and live. And you'll remember that Moses was tucked behind the cleft of the rock there on Mount Sinai as the Lord passed by and he saw the outstreamings of his glory and then his face glowed forever. The recognition of the holiness of God is a fearful and awful thing. It is something not to be trifled with. You see, we're very, aren't we? Quite cavalier in our thoughts of who God is. We've domesticated him. We've kind of brought him down to earth. We've we have, as one scholar put it, you know, he made us in, in his image and then, and then we've, we've returned the favor. We've tried to domesticate him and make him like us. He's just, 
He's just an ordinary being like us, so to speak. Oh, no. The majestic and holy God who is presented here in Isaiah chapter 6, even the holy man of Isaiah, the servant of the living God, is afraid of being torn apart and falling into the silence of death in the presence of Almighty God. This is bad news, you see. And this is why, friends, we need the good news that comes in this text, you see. Why this is the gospel according to Isaiah. Notice that this holy picture of who God is brings about the bad news about who it is that we are. We won't know who we really are till we come into a true knowledge of who he is. Maybe one of the most memorable lines from John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, you know, his most famous magnum opus, In his very first paragraph, even in his very first sentence, he says that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man cannot in any way be separated. We won't really know who it is that we are. We won't have wisdom as to who we are if we don't have wisdom to who he is, in whose image we've been made. Isn't so many of the problems in your life and maybe in the world today is that we have a really, really small God and a really, really big self And we occupy our own selves with our achievements and our gifts and our comforts and the things that we think are so important. And we narrowly have a thought of God. And then when the holiness of God begins to break upon us, you see what we see here. We see what Isaiah sees. Woe is me, for I am undone. You see, this is really who we are apart from the grace of God, you understand. You know, here at Cornerstone, we have membership vows. And in the very first of our membership vows, it reads this way, I am a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, even His judgment, and I am without hope in the world. That will not give you the warm and fuzzies. But it's the truth, my friends. And we confess it. And we understand that that is true. And listen, the richness of God's grace will never be as precious to you as it ought to be until you understand the holiness of God. Until you understand the majesty of God, the glory of God. That's why the Bible echoes it over and over and over again. And so the bad news about who Isaiah is in this text, you see, is then swallowed up in the good news that this holy king is one who atones for sin. You know, just as the truth of his a condemned state begins to dawn on Isaiah, and he fears the silence of the grave, we see the most ex- amazing expression of God's grace, don't we, in verse 6? It's one of the seraphim moving at the command of God, now flies from the altar to Isaiah with a burning coal that he has taken from the altar with tongs, and he now brings it to those very unclean lips of Isaiah. And he touches Isaiah's lips with it. What is this? What is this drama that's going on before us here in the in the text? Well, let me just ask you, where did this coal come from? Did you did you catch it? It didn't it didn't come from your your grill. It didn't come from your fireplace. It came from the altar. Why is that important? Well, What does an altar do? Well, an altar is a place where sacrifices are made. An altar is a place where sacrifices for sin are are made. 
Uh, This is the place where atonement can be uh, secured. This is the place where every Israelite would have known the only place where sin, so to speak, could be satisfied, where the wrath of God could be quenched. And the angel of the Lord takes from that altar and brings the the, the white-hot coal from the altar of atonement, and he touches it to the lips of Isaiah, this, this, this expression of the total of his sinfulness now being touched, so to speak, through his mouth, which is exactly, of course, later in this text what the Lord is going to use to proclaim his prophecy. And it's there where he's told these most beautiful words, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Now, to atone for sin means to pay the price of it. It means means a ransom. That it's there at the altar where justice is served. Where what our sins rightly deserve are received. It's, It's there where God's wrath is satisfied. It's there where our guilt is removed. And it's why that this altar in this portrait, if you're panning forward in the story of redemption, you can't help but see something of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ here, can't you? Right? Because wasn't it on Calvary where God's wrath burned the fiercest? Wasn't it there where the Lamb of God became the object of wrath, so to speak, on the altar for His people? Wasn't it there at the cross where the flames of justice encircled the Lord Jesus Christ and atonement for our sin was ultimately made? It's there, the cross, the final altar. The final place where the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world indeed does so. And why the angel of the Lord, the seraphim, can say to Isaiah in faith and in hope that indeed that will happen for all who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. It's remarkable when you look at this text and you begin to see some of the pathways that open up in glimpses of the Christian life. For right after the coal has touched the lips of Isaiah, what does he hear? Well, he begins to hear the voice of the Lord. He's been standing far off, not even within the presence of the threshold of the throne room. And and now the seraphim has had to come to him to atone. But now he's now hearing the voice of the Lord. Notice he hears the the voice of the Lord ask a question. Who's going to go up for us? Who will we send? He's looking for a prophet. He's looking for someone to do ministry, to go to his people of Judah, to go to the southern kingdom and preach the truth. That's what he's looking for. He hears the call of God. And notice what Isaiah does. Striking, you wouldn't expect it. He says, here I am. Send me. You should be saying to yourself, as one who's been reading along in this text, wait, are you the same one who said, woe is me, I am lost like a second ago? Aren't you the one who feels like you're being ruined and coming apart at the seams and all of a sudden you're ready for missionary activity? What's happened to this man? His sin has been atoned for. That's what's happened to this man. Redemption has been won for this man. This man has been converted. This man has come come alive. He's in the righteousness of, of the Lord now. And what has it done to him? Is he now, you know, sitting in his sin and misery and mealy mouth about where it is that he is? No, 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 no. He's become a confident missionary, a servant of the living God. 
He's become one now who, having been amazed and astonished by the love of God for him and the grace of God as it's been poured out for him and atoning for his sin, he says to himself, what must I do now but solely and completely give my life away in service to the one who has loved me like this? Oh, what a wonderful portrait it is, isn't it? You know, a mission really does arise from a heart that's been made alive to the love of God and the grace of Christ Jesus. That's where mission comes from. Maybe you've wondered, like, well, you know, when you read about Isaiah's urgency and eagerness here, you say to yourself, like, well, that's not the heart I have. Have you ever wondered why that's not the heart you have? You know, you know, you hear, you know, we hear, you know, we need a volunteer in the nursery, and we all just kind of look down, right? We just look down, just examine our feet for a little bit, right? Oh Lord, don't look at me. Don't send me. Don't send me. I mean, to the nursery, right? <laughs> Why, why not have the eagerness to serve the Lord? Right? Why not an energy to answer the call of the Lord, to see his commands and the mission to say, here I am, send me. Why not that? I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Maybe one of the most central reasons why. You've not been captivated and astonished by the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. You, you can't love a Savior who gave the whole of himself for you and then say, I don't think I'll give anything back. That doesn't register, you see. Or I think I'll hold this part of my life back. Oh, I know he gave all. I think I'll just give a little. That's not the spirit of the gospel, is it? That's not the spirit of Isaiah here. Isaiah says, here I am. See me if you could use this man. I have a testimony. I have a story. I have a story of your atonement. I have a story of the guilt that you've removed. Here I am. Now, use these unclean lips that have been cleaned for your purposes. You see, that's really what we're looking for, isn't it? It's the recognition of the good news of God's grace compelling us into the work of mission. Well, you would think, okay, well, that's a great note to end on. In fact, the hour's waxing on, right? But there's one more cycle of bad news and good news, you see. And this good news, with regards to the change in the life of Isaiah in his enrollment into the work of mission, into the work of prophecy that God has called him to, well, then we see what his call actually is. We get the content of his prophecy. And let me tell you, friends, it's bad news for coming judgment is the reality for the southern kingdom of Judah. Listen to these words. Go and say to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a hard word. I think it's safe to say this is not the ministry that Isaiah thought he was going to sign up for. It's not the kind of ministry that any prophet or any preacher would say, oh yes, you know, you know Isaiah saying, I should have read the job description first before I volunteered for this role. This is a very hard role. You're going to preach and, and nobody's going to, to listen. Um, they're going to keep seeing, but they're not going to perceive. In fact, the more that you preach and proclaim, the less they're going to comprehend God is sending Isaiah into a ministry of judgment. Notice how I said that. A ministry of judgment. 
He's going at the command of the Lord to minister the truth of the Lord, but in doing so, it will only harden the people of the Lord. What a difficult ministry. You know, we don't think of the Word of God in this way. I, I, I presume you probably don't think of worship this way. You probably don't think of this moment right now in this way. You'll sometimes hear preachers pray things or say things like, you know, God's Word goes forth and it never returns void. And you think to yourself, that's right. It does something positive in the lives of the people. And you're partially right. And there's a whole group of people who hear it and do not hear it hardens them. It's a ministry of judgment. See, God's patience has run out on the people of Israel in the southern kingdom, and He is giving them over to the hardness of their heart. And the ministry of judgment that's been given to Isaiah will only solidify that more. You see, there's a spiritual dynamic that's taking place right now, even in the midst of the preaching of God's Word. Some of us are hearing it. And some of us are receiving it and responding to it. Some of us are being softened by it and encouraged by it. And the, the warm affection for, for Christ and the glory of the gospel and who God is is, is manifesting itself. And something of here I am, send me, is rising up in the lives of God's people as the Spirit of the Lord works among them. But there's a whole other group of people who are looking at their watch only and wondering when lunch is. And we'll walk out with ne'er a thought about who God is, nor care. And may be hardened by the ministry of the Word. Remember, the seed goes forward, and sometimes it falls on hard soil. And the birds come and they eat it up. I think it was Ray Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah. He says, the thing we should be most vigilant to be praying against is the hardness of our heart. Lord, soften my heart. Aren't you, aren't you like me sometimes in this sense that you've come into the presence of the Lord and isn't it wonderful how the Lord speaks to us these rich and abiding truths and then you've forgotten them within the hour? And, and it's, it's as if the, the seed didn't really germinate, right? It, it didn't really make it a lasting difference and an enduring fruit. The, the ministry here that Isaiah has been given is a ministry of, of judgment. And it calls us to really test our hearts, doesn't it? Doesn't it call us to examine ourselves? We're not, we don't want to be a people who seeing don't see. And a people who hearing do not perceive. But whose heaviness of heart labors even under the word of God. We want the word of God to have a catalyzing effect on our hearts, don't we? And limiting effect. You know, and here's the deal. You can't make that happen. Parents, have you tried to do this with your children? You tried to like make them hear the word of God? Good luck with that. Well, they might get the right answers. But you can't change their hearts. A neighbor that you've been preaching to and sharing the gospel with, that family relative. It's humbling, isn't it? But for the grace of God, you see. I pray it doesn't cause you to despair. I pray it doesn't cause you to fear in the wrong sense, but fear in the right sense. 
Fear in the holy reverent sense. I'm not in control. I'm not in control of my own soul, much less anybody else's. I need the Lord to do a work in me. I need the Spirit of God to do a work in me. Do you feel that urgency? That's the spirit of the text, you see. There's nothing cavalier about this. There's nothing lackadaisical about this. Eternity, you see, hangs in the balance. Let's not play church, he's saying. Let's act like these things matter, that they're true, that they're real, because they are. You know, Isaiah only says three things in this text. He says, woe is me. Here I am, send me. What a radical change that is. But then he says, how long, O Lord? What a roller coaster. He began at a low spot. He ascended to the heavenlies. He ended up in a valley again. Sounds a lot like the Christian life, doesn't it? And the Lord doesn't immediately answer his question, does he? When he says, how long, O Lord? He doesn't say, well, it'll be 37 and a half years, and then everything will you know, go this way and that way. You know, God very rarely does something like that. Instead, he says to him, you know, it's going to go until all the cities lie in waste. All the houses are without people. The land is a desolate place. But there are many forsaken places all over the midst of the land, this promised land. Where only a tenth of them will remain, 90% of them will be gone. In other words, Judah's going to become a disaster area, and you'll, you'll know it when you see it. Where there once was a, a wood of towering oaks, it's now going to be full of stumps. And the stumps will be burned over. It, it, it'll, be a, it'll be a burned over district is what it will be. You know, historically, at this moment we're reading in Isaiah, we're actually reading of what will happen to the southern kingdom in, in just a matter of, of years from this point. Just a, just a matter of years from this point, Nebuchadnezzar was going to come knocking down the door of Jerusalem. He's going to carry the people of, of, of Judah off into exile in 587 BC. This is going to happen. What is being prophesied here long before it took place is going to happen. The word of the Lord is true. And yet in the midst of this bad news of the ministry of judgment, it's just like the Lord to do this. He gives a glimmer of hope. Just a glimmer of hope. In fact, you'd miss it if you weren't looking for it. You see, there's good news in the ministry. There's good news in the ministry, and it's, it's just very brief and passing. But if you'll notice there in, in, in verse 13, it says, And though a tenth remain in it, In the land, only a tenth will remain in it. It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in the stump. If you're reading along, you think to yourself, what in the world, what does he mean that the holy seed is in the stump? It's as if he's suggesting... That a new beginning will come out of this end. That that which was cut down will be the means of seeding that which will come forth again. A new beginning, a new a, a redemption of, of sorts is going to come forth from the burned over stumps that were failed that was the southern kingdom of Judah. In the stump, he says, 
There's a holy seed. Now I hope because you know something of the prophecy of Isaiah that you're panning forward in your mind to Isaiah 11.1. Because you are, aren't you? Yes, you are. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Surely... Surely Isaiah is pulling through the thread to Isaiah 11.1 and saying there's this shoot that's going to come. The seed that's in the stump is going to shoot up from the stump of Jesse. Well, who was from the stump of Jesse? Who was to shoot? Well, it was, of course, David. It was the, the beginning of the legacy of the throne of which was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 would never be without a son of David. Well, who was Uzziah? Well, he was the son of David. That's what he was. And now he's dead. And who's on the throne? The Lord is on the throne, but who will be ultimately on the throne? That's right. Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. That's who's coming. The one whose lineage we read of at the opening of the New Testament in Matthew that traces all of that lineage down to the one who is the true seed that is in the stump. The one who was promised long ago the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That's who this is. This is Jesus, the Messiah who Isaiah is speaking to. Here, his prophecy has within it a glimmer of hope that when all is lost, all is not lost. There will be a seed. And do not despise the day of small beginnings. For through this small beginning, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as far as the waters cover the sea. Through this one, through this holy seed, through this Messiah, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the world will become the very kingdom of God. The cosmos will become the very kingdom of God. You see, this is the gospel of Isaiah. This is the victory of Isaiah. And as we as his people study it over the next five weeks together and we dig into those servant songs of Isaiah, you know what we begin to see? We begin to see that what Isaiah himself had to go through here in Isaiah 6, the undoing, the lost, the suffering, the pain, all of the bad news unto the good news, that the seed that's in the stump will go through that too. On the behalf of his people, that the seed will himself go through all of the bad news, taking on, as it were, the very sins of his people, in order that the good news of resurrection morn will be for you and for me. Do you see? You know, today, if the Lord would peel back the veil and we would be cast into a vision, you know what we would see? Shrouded in smoke with the thresholds thundering, with the seraphim flying, with holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, would we hear? But you know what we would see? We would see the very Son of God, the Savior of His people, King Jesus on the throne is what we would say. And King Jesus is coming back. He has begun His kingdom and He will bring it to completion. And so Isaiah says, as you look out at your world and it looks to you like failed trees, it looks to you like passing glory, 
It looks to you like no one's listening, like a ministry of judgment is having its way in the world that may be so. Don't forget, the seed is in the stump. And the shoot will come forth and has come forth from Jesse. The hope is yours, believer in Christ. Trust in the servant of the Lord. Father in heaven, we pray you would give to us a fresh awakening, even now by the power of the Spirit in our own hearts, of the reality of your holiness. Father, we need to be woken up again to your holiness. We would, we would ask that you not give us over to a ruined estate, but that, Lord, you would be merciful. Forgive us for the ways in which we are presumptive. Forgive us for the ways in which we don't take seriously your, your word and your call. When we choose the things of this world over you, and we have no zeal, no zeal when an opportunity to serve arises. We turn our backs the other way. We don't say, here I am, send me. And Lord, when the call that you give us is hard, we wished we had not accepted it. We wished we had given up. Would you help us to see that the cross that we bear is leading to the resurrection that you have promised? That the sufferings of this life aren't worthy to be compared to the glories that await us in heaven? Lord, would you make us heavenly people? Would you make us heavenly people? That the aroma about us would be of Christ. And that we would minister faithfully in His name. Father, every single soul in this room has a sphere of influence who are your people. Neighbors, co-workers, family members, children. Cause us this day to be on mission for you for eternity hangs in the balance. Help us not to grow dull or to grow weary in doing good. But today, by the life of your grace, carried along by your Spirit, we'd find ourselves renewed and revived, saying to you, O oh Lord, forgive me and send me. Forgive me and send me. Lord, help us to remember that this world is, and our time in it is short, and the days are evil. Let us be those who redeem the time. Father, in the way that this prayer needs to be answered, in the many different ways in this room, would you grant wisdom in the answering of it? And Lord, be gracious to hard hearts. Be gracious to those of us resistant to your word. Break even now upon those hard hearts and replace them with the heart of flesh. That the growth of your kingdom might be seen in the evidence of more changed lives for Jesus' sake. Lord, hear this prayer. And in your wisdom, would you answer it? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.